Hello, and welcome back to the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brandon Buddha. In this episode, we are doing our final discussion episode on a chapter, though not on the novel of Peace. This is our chapter five discussion episode. But before we get into that, uh, Glenn, you were recently on a Ray Bradbury podcast. I was. I was just recently on the show called The Bradbury Chronicles with friend of the network, John DeGreiter. I was there really in my capacity as co-host of Hanging Out with the Dream King because Brent and I had just covered the Neil Gaiman story, October in the Chair, which is dedicated to Ray Bradbury. And so John did an episode about that Neil Gaiman story too. And then he and I compared Gaiman and Bradbury. We you know, talked about how they each write children. Uh, the focus was much more on, on Bradbury, as you can imagine. But we also then talked about our love of short stories in general. And I had just a lot of fun. John's show is great. I think that the speculative fiction fan community has needed a podcast devoted to Ray Bradbury for a long time. And John has stepped in to fill that gap and is doing a wonderful job of it. So I hope I hope that people will go check it out. Uh, again, the show is called The Bradbury Chronicles, and I'll, I'll put a link in the show notes as well. But speaking of shows devoted to speculative fiction writers, we should, uh, we should probably <laughs> do ours. So uh, where do you want to start discussing Chapter 5 of Peace? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, sometimes I like to be start in the specific, in the weeds and, and the rough, and then kind of get to the green. But I think I want to start broad this time. It's a terrible mixed metaphor. The point I'm making is we're going to start broad here uh, and then kind of get into the details of Chapter 5. Because... This chapter is really different, I think, than a lot of the rest of the chapters of the book. There are fewer things that tie back into the novel like we saw in chapter four. And I felt really, I don't know, maybe even almost ambivalent about this chapter when I read it the first time and, and thought about what it was trying to do in the book. So, Glenn, that's where I want to start. I want to get your initial reaction. When you read this chapter the first time, maybe not for this project, but the first time you read this book, you're blown through peace. Um what was your reaction to getting to this chapter and and where it leaves us? I'm glad you I'm glad you specified that you wanted me to think back to 2006, which was the first time that I read this book and and try to remember how I felt about it then because of course in 2006 I was reading the book one for a very different purpose than we've been reading it now, but also 15 years is a a, a long time, right? And and so my perspective on things, the things I'm interested in when I'm going to stories has has changed at least a little bit since then. And definitely that first time when I was reading Peace, I was very interested in the world of the early 20th century and maybe the mid-20th century as well that Wolf treats almost like a, an imaginary world, like a speculative fiction setting, and explores that world obliquely, right, through the perspective of Weir as he's aging and his different types of relationships. That's still what I principally love about the book. But it did mean that that first time, I wasn't really paying all that much attention to plot or any kind of plot expectations that I might have, right? Looking for the final chapter of this to wrap up or, or you know, tie together uh, loose ends or something like that, uh, that I wasn't really looking for. For me, I think my initial reaction to it then was simply that 
I didn't care about the 1960s or the 1970s. And so, you know, to me, the book was just sort of winding down as it was getting close to my own lifetime, uh, which is about the you know, the point in which I check out of being interested in the world is the world in which I have been alive. And so, you know, for me, I don't know that I felt disappointed or or anything like that, you know, in terms of thinking about the plot, but definitely felt like the book was coming to an appropriate close and was glad, I guess, in some sense that we didn't spend a huge amount of time here in the late 1960s or uh, really the early 1970s, I think that this, this last chapter is. But yeah, I think this time around, though, I, I I hear what you're saying about thinking that there were going to be some, you know, there was going to be some more plot stuff getting tied up here. That this is a book that doesn't feel like it concludes so much as it just stops. Yeah, and that's actually my bag. You know, as a writer, I I'm terrible at conclusions. I'm much better at stopping stories at the appropriate place, and I think this story does stop at the appropriate place. But you know. To me, this last chapter does something like what we see at the end of uh, The Island of Dr. Death and other stories, where Wolf, as a writer, is calling us back into the novel itself. And, you know, that's a... Something he's really interested in, obviously, he says, you know, a, a, a great book is one that can be reread with pleasure. And I think Wolf tries to do that as a writer. That's pretty clear. And so here at the end of this novel, it's something that he does. He calls us back into the book in a really interesting way with this Chinese philosopher's pillow. And, and we'll be talking about that in a little bit. But mostly what I felt, my reaction to reading this chapter was really a a jarring reminder that this is a memoir first, right? We've been reading it as all these other sorts of things, and that's something we'll be talking about in our wrap-up episodes, approaches to the text. But the way that Wolf ends this novel is to really remind us that first and foremost, this is to be approached as a memoir. And it's something I needed reminding of, even if initially I felt unsatisfied with the final chapter. I love the way that he invites us to go back by suggesting to us, in fact, that Weir is going to use this uh, this magic ceramic pillow and get to go back and do his life over again. I think, well, I know when we're doing the wrap-up episodes on the whole novel, we're going to think about what that what that might mean. But just thinking about this in terms of, uh, we, you know, we just finished this chapter, we finished the, the book, and we're just, you know, kind of thinking about what the point of this chapter was. I really like that it ends with this suggestion that as a memoir, Weir has, in some sense, the really cool, almost magical ability not to go back and live his life over again, but to go back and tell us different stories about it, right? This is a memoir. It is not a a, a, a diary, right? It is not an autobiographical diary uh, in which you know, Weir has taken us through every day of his life. We have jumped around. There are huge gaps in his life. So he could go back and do another memoir that highlights different things and might even frame his life totally differently. And I think that's one of the beautiful things about how stories work in general, but even it's a beautiful thing about how the stories that we tell ourselves about ourselves work. It's really remarkable the way that, you know, this chapter called The President gives us the sense that even though we're only getting a few hours of Weir's life as the president of the company— we're given the sense that this is emblematic of his whole time as president. He 
realizes people in this position of a CEO of huge companies um, don't require as much stamina and concentration as, I don't know, uh, mechanical engineers do, for instance, in their 30s or 40s when they're at the height of their abilities and working really hard for a company. CEOs take it easy a little bit. They're the figurehead in some sense. And I think that's how Weir really sees himself as the president. And that all comes through in this chapter, you know, in a very broad way, the different roles he has to adapt, the personas he takes on, uh, the kind of work that he does, the work that he's able to do. Um, and, and then also his sort of fixation with the past is also here in this moment, his office is decorated with photos of his time as an engineer and thinking about his relationships with people in the past. So yeah, this is really a great chapter, actually. It's just not, um, I don't, whimsical might be the word. There's not the magical realist elements to it, to the degree that we find in, in those other chapters, though we do have that great ghost story. I think that's right on the mark. Uh, other chapters of this book have felt like uh, they were written by the Gene Wolfe who wrote uh, The Island of Dr. Death or even The Fifth Head of Cerberus. But this chapter here has felt like the Gene Wolfe who wrote Hour of Trust for Lesson. And those stories, for Lesson in particular, as much as that is a masterpiece of a story, it's a depressing story. It's not one that I'm going to go back to for like in enjoyment for, you know, I've got an hour to spare. I'm going to sit down and eat some you know, some Pringles and read a, a story for fun. <laughs> I'm never going to go to Four Lesson for that. And I don't know that I would go to chapter five of this book for that either. I think there's some really rich material here. It, it brings the book to a very good close, but it doesn't have that whimsy, that that fun, that kind of magic that you're talking about that, that brings joy. Right. The the There's no wonder here. I mean, Weir is old. He's seen it all. Uh, he knows how the company runs. He's been there for forever since the beginning um, the place feels haunted to him in more ways than one and he includes uh, in this chapter another thing we'll get to here this lamentation from the farmer the way that Cashinsville has changed but it's also become more like itself in that I guess it's always been a little corrupt it's always been a little exploitative um, and now it's just more open about it. And so, yeah, there's a lot of depressing stuff here too, but we should actually dig into the chapter now. I think our audience has a sense of how we feel about this chapter <laughs> now. Yeah. So what we're going to do is walk through this chapter in kind of roughly the same types of sections that we walked through our episodes because this chapter is just really well structured and, and there's not a real reason to... Um, look at the broad thematic stuff other than what we did. And maybe that'll come out as we look at the details of each section here. So let's look at the prologue of this chapter now. And these two elements, or maybe three elements that come back to us uh, that have been with us since the first chapter of the novel, that's the visit to Dr. Van Ness's office, the thematic apperception test, and Margaret Lorne. I want to start with the thematic apperception test here. So this is was really interesting to me. It feels like this whole novel is meant to be framed around weird telling stories based on these cards. But when we get to the end of this chapter and look back at the previous chapters, we see that uh, Weir has only looked at two of the thematic apperception test cards. Um, but this is a acting as though it's a conceit that structures the whole novel and it returns here at chapter five. But Weir's not looking 
at a card. He won't look at a third card during this visit. So I wondered, Glenn, why you feel that Wolf is reminding us that Weir is supposed to be telling stories based on what he sees on these cards. It's a conceit that's easy to forget. Like, why return to it here? Why remind us of it in this moment at the close of the novel? Right. This is something that you and I have gone back and forth on as we've been reading the book. It's been an open question. Is this memoir entirely prompted by these cards? Is any of it prompted by these cards? I think by chapter four, we felt definitely that at least some of it was prompted by these cards. I, I'm i still unclear if all of it has been. Uh, and you're, you're certainly right to point out that we haven't seen very many of the cards. I think that doesn't mean that other stories, other anecdotes that we've gotten haven't been prompted by the cards. Though, at the same time, just in terms of, of thinking about uh, reality effect, uh, and and also even some of the reality details that we get in the story. One thing I'll say is that you know if you were to read this book out loud, you know, or listen to the audiobook version of this, right, it would take much longer than a single doctor's appointment. So it's you know not not conceivable that these are really the stories that Weir is telling to Doctor Van Ness. But then also we know actually that Weir is writing these stories down in his museum mansion, right? And so it's not clear to me. In fact, I so right, guess what I'm trying to say is that I feel certain that most of the stories actually that we do get in this book are not things that Weir is telling to Dr. Van Ness. And it may only be the case then that these two that we get where we actually see the card prompts are things that Weir is telling Van Ness. That's my feeling as well. And it seems as though this conceit then is here to remind us of the working day reality, even though it's unreal. I mean, it's like some kink killer chronicles uh, nonsense, where you, have a, <laughs> you know, a hundred and fifty thousand word novel that's supposed to be told over the course of a single sitting or something. But um, uh, you know, we we get to suspend our disbelief with with fiction. But yes, this conceit here is, I think, meant to call us back uh, more as a framing device to the quote-unquote real world of Weir. He's in his late middle age year, uh, maybe early retirement years, and he's going to the doctor in the morning, taking the morning off to see his doctor, and he's got to go back uh, to work. And so that's the real life of Weir that we're supposed to be getting um, from these doctor visits. And Van Ness is a very thorough doctor to be doing both a physical and psychological evaluation um, in, in this in this morning of Weir's life. I think it was a different era in uh, medical procedure than, than, it is, yeah. than it is now. But yeah, I think one of the things that is happening here is the ring compositionness of this which we've talked about a lot in terms of the the structure the way the the, the chapters uh, on either side of chapter 3 rather mirror each other and so as we're getting to the close of chapter 5 or just getting chapter 5 at all we need to be mirroring chapter 1 and we need to be building towards this last segment of the book which is going to send us back around to chapter 1 and so you know chapter 1 opens with we're telling us about the stroke that he's just had and you know really struggling with that stroke struggling with his physical health as he limps around his property trying to get uh, firewood to use the fire to stay warm looking at his uh, his limping uh, tracks in the the mud as well and so 
this chapter then has to have a heavy dose of we're as unhealthy, we're as seen as doctor, we're as either about to have his stroke or possibly even just having had maybe a small stroke prior to the big one. That's a little unclear here. But at any rate, we need to be returning to the idea of we're as an old man who is unhealthy. Right. I mean, I, I suppose you're referring to this line we get where uh, we're secretary or someone mentions that we're drags his leg whenever he's tired. and That's so, right. Yeah. So that, that could indicate that he's already had uh, a minor stroke. He might have had a stroke while he's written this novel as well, or written this memoir as well. So yeah, the, this this bit about Weir's uh, failing health is, is a big part of this novel. And so one of the questions of the text is, again, what is being brought to Weir's mind in an immediate sense as he's realizing, you know, he's 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 on the tail end of his life, and we'll save that kind of uh, structural question for when for when we do our final wrap-up episodes. But one of the things on Weir's mind that we see return here in the opening of Chapter 5 is Margaret Lorne. Obviously, we're going to try to piece together her whole story with Weir later on. But she is brought up now. Um, we're reminded she's not Lorne anymore. She's Margaret Price. And... We know that she is someone who's dominated Weir's thoughts for decades, but as president, as he's putting on this persona for this chapter, showing us who he is as president, there doesn't really seem to be any space for Margaret Lorne. And I wondered what you made of this decision of Wolf's or maybe Weir's to kind of unceremoniously write Margaret Lorne off in the first page of the final chapter and not have her, you know, be the voice at the end asking him if he's awake or something along those lines. Weir's life in this chapter doesn't seem particularly happy. It doesn't seem necessarily miserable, but the few things that we learn about what Weir's life is like here in this chapter are that Weir's life is dominated by a sense of of duty, that he really isn't Weir anymore. He is the president. He is this job. Uh, he talks about not having as much time to pursue his interest, especially reading, as as he would like. He said that in chapter four as well. But what he meant was, I only get to read two books a week and not a book every day, which is what I would actually do if I didn't need to work for a living, right? But here we we get that his, his time is really not his own, that although this job uh, doesn't require the type of concentration that is required of people doing the actual engineering and so on. It is a job that takes up a lot of hours. It's a job that he wears publicly as a as a persona when he's out in public. And it's pretty clear that he doesn't have any personal relationships in his life at this point. He doesn't have you know any kind of romantic partner or or lover. He doesn't have any friends seemingly his family is all gone. He is very alone but also doesn't seem actually to me to be that miserable about that. Like the job has become a kind of identity for him in addition to a persona. It's actually become like his his life. He's thrown himself into it. And I think that there might even be some sense in which throwing himself into the company like this keeps him from ruminating about the lost opportunities in his life, the missteps and mistakes, right? And so we don't see him longing for Margaret Lorne so much in this chapter the way that we have before, because he's allowing himself to become this persona. 
just listening to you describe all that and frame uh, how Weir presents himself. I mean, it's clear he's unhappy. He has to drink a drink he doesn't like because he's made up some rule about public perception of him uh, making sure he's drinking the uh, screwdrivers made of bad uh, potato orange flavored potato juice um, (laughs) instead of scotch, which he loves. But what you're describing really is the story of Ben Yahya that we get so much earlier in this book. And your contention was that the Merid is the company, not Julius Smart. And I think that your description here of Weir's time at the company uh, just helps to strengthen that argument uh, because that's exactly what's going on here. I think that, that that that's a brilliant explanation that really ties back into the text. And if we continue to think about what you've described in terms of the Ben Yahya story, then part of Weir's satisfaction as president is is actually in the longing for returning to, as we see at the end of the chapter, not Margaret Lorne, um, but his life with Aunt Olivia as a child. And so he realizes that's the the lost love, perhaps, and not uh, the romantic love that he, I think he probably would have screwed up had he, had he been able to have a relationship with Margaret Lorne. So yeah, that's my, I don't know, that's my take on what you've just said. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I'm I, I'm with you, and uh, yeah, I think something we haven't said explicitly yet on the on the air this episode, but that I, th- I think is implicit in everything we've been talking about, which is that it's actually always difficult for us to do these discussion episodes for the last chapter of a book because we want to veer into that wrap up material, but we're not prepared for that, so we're going to be pulling our punches and biting our tongues quite a bit, and uh, that's what I'm doing right now. Exactly. Yeah, we're we're going to end this podcast with a mouthful of blood, I think, <laughs> more than anything else. Uh, all right, well, let's move on here to the next section here, which is the letter. This, trying to come up with a way to break this down and talk about it, it, it almost broke me. There's so much we could go into here. But I think I've got a way to try to make sense of the letter. There's a few things on my mind here. Um, but let's just look at it again from a broad perspective and then try to move into the details and see if we have any clarity around what this letter is even doing here. Some of this I think we're going to be biting our tongues on because it might play into how we've read this whole novel. But at the top here, broadly speaking, Charles Turner's name is revealed at the end of the letter. When we did the recap, we kind of broke that reveal um, really early, Glenn, when you were recapping. But if for some reason people aren't reading along, this is meant to be uh, a revelation. And this is very strange to me, the way Wolf decides to do this. And so I wonder, Glenn, it's clear that Charles Turner is the dog boy, right? Who And there are all these hints about this in the letter itself, talking about his mom not wanting him to work in a factory, the way circus life is free, the fact that his name is Charles and he's a dog boy and the dog boy's name was Charlie. But then the the reveal of the name here, is it meant to give us some sort of epiphany about whether or not this circus story is smart or weird? Do you think this is epiphanic in any way? um, Or do you think it's just here because Wolf is playing tricks on us? Well, I do think that Wolf is just at the core of his being a mischievous person. (laughs) And so I think for him, it's just fun to play these games with us where he hides things from us, doesn't 
reveal information that would actually be helpful uh, in terms of contextualizing what we're reading. Doesn't reveal that, doesn't give us that information until the end so that we have to go back and do it again, uh, which I, I love. We both love. That's why we're here, right? Big, the, the wolfiness <laughs> of Wolf's writing is uh, a major uh, it's a, it's a major feature of, of these books. But I don't know how much substance there really is to this. I don't think that I have the type of anxiety that you do about whether or not Mr. Tilly ever really existed. Uh, and, or, you know, if that was, if it was really Julius Smart, who was the mad scientist at the the circus all, you know, all along, I, I don't think those are, are questions or doubts that I have to the extent that you do. But that, what that means then is that I don't really have an answer to why this story is here a- at all, right? If it's not meant to really show us something or, you know, unveil something that was hidden to us previously, I'm not sure what function it is serving other than that it's an enjoyable yarn. We'll get into some of those specifics to see if we can determine whether or not this letter is here to be some sort of unveiling. Uh, I want to be clear, my anxieties about this uh, Mr. Tilly, Julius Smart at the Circus story are, are I guess, twofold. I'm certain Mr. Tilly exists and that that part of the story is Smart's story. I am now less convinced, though not unconvinced, that uh, Smart was the one who went to the circus. I I think Weir could have added that bit into the story. But we also get this weird line about how the photographs we get that are associated with this letter are really old and all those people might be dead. And, you know, it doesn't line up. The clothing is from the 1940s and so, or the 1930s. And so we get this sense that we're probably would have been too young to have this have been his life story that he ran away, tried to run away with the circus as a kid or something. It's more my feeling that if he knows Charles Turner well and the circus people, it's because this is the circus they hire to do events for the Orange Juice Company. And that could go back to Julius Smart knowing this crew from when he ran into them in in Florida or whatever. So there's a lot of questions. There's a lot of threads that Wolf ties into this where so many things can be possible. I mean, one thing we could ask here, and I expect us to dismiss this question rather quickly, but it it is a way of reading, is the way that Charles Turner shows up in chapter four almost exclusively as an interruption or he's interpolated with the Lois Arbuthnot treasure hunt narrative. So, we could then read this this letter, this update from Charles Turner, the characters in it, as maybe an unveiling about what happened to Lois due to their, I don't know, the nearness association factor that we see in chapter four. Do you think that's a fair move to make as a reader here? Or do you think that this isn't about anybody that we've met in, in the novel so far? No, I, I don't think that it is about anybody that we've met so far. I don't think that the juxtaposition here of of Charles Turner and Lois in chapter four is meant to suggest to us that what happened to Lois following the the mishap on the treasure hunt, <laughs> I don't think that what happened to her is that she ran off and joined the circus. I don't think it's that she uh, electrocuted herself or, or you know, took her own life in some other way. I don't think that those are the conclusions that were meant to draw with that juxtaposition. I, I, I think that you know, Turner's brief appearances in chapter four are really more in line with the way that Wolf has been structuring the book as a whole, which is that he has had, I think, in every chapter, 
some interpolation, maybe even interruption from something that's going to come up in the next chapter. It's almost like he's giving us little little teasers. It's like uh, almost like the story goes to commercial and then we get a, a, a in in the commercial break, actually get a commercial for next week on this same TV show <laughs> is kind of how it feels to me. Yeah, I've been calling them anchor points. I think it's, as we've as we've been going about, and that's exactly the way that that Wolf is structuring this story. I think, and you know, a lot of you just saying um, we are not supposed to know anybody from the Cinderella story kind of. Uh, makes my next series of questions moot, but I think we have to investigate this a little deeper for the sake of our audience and maybe for our own sake, see if we can shake something loose. I am also skeptical that we know these people. We know that Weir does because of the way that Charles Turner talks about the conversations that he and Weir have had about the people in the circus. Turner says this, for instance, in the letter, you remember that when I was at your place, we talked about Doris and had fun thinking about what could happen to her that would be good and decided that one evening some big draw would see her right after they pulled her in to replace Mitzi Schwenk in the ride for life. He goes on to describe what's essentially a, a, a Cinderella story here. And this letter has so many elements of the Cinderella story except it has a tragic ending, not with the wicked stepmother being put into a barrel full of nails and being rolled down a hill, or uh, with Cinderella in the Disney version becoming like a beautiful princess or queen, but with this Doris character, the Cinderella character, instead killing herself out of a sense of despair and hopelessness. So, like, why? Why are we getting this story, this hopeless retelling of Cinderella in the guise of this letter uh, about this girl called Doris and, you know, the fairy godmother who's just a woman who knows her and the uh, divorced woman who has two daughters who are strippers and all of this mad masking of the Cinderella story. Why a fairy tale? With a tragic ending. I think all the fairy tales that we've gotten in this book have had tragic endings. Uh, that, that might not quite be true. We're about to go reread the whole book. So that'd be actually <laughs> one of the things that we'll need to be looking out for when we read it again before we do our wrap-up episodes. But certainly most of them have felt like they've had tragic endings, that they they use all this fairy tale language, set, set us up for really feeling I think for us, you know, just thinking about the generation in which we find ourselves very different from what the generation that Wolf was from, you know, having these expectations about fairy tale stories that have largely been crafted by Disney cartoons for us. But Wolf gives us all of these fairy tales with these really tragic endings where there there isn't really a happily ever after. And I think that that generally just parallels Weir's own life. Weir, Weir's life could actually be mapped onto a fairy tale. That's probably something we should try to do in the, the wrap-up episode. But we don't ever see him really being happy. And in fact, we know that he's had some real misery in his life and that he here in chapter five is you know winding down towards this stroke or there's a clock you know ticking down to this stroke that we know is going to leave him feeling really wretched and really miserable. And so in some sense, all of the fairy tales that we've been getting in this book have have almost been kind of a motif of of how life works, the sort of tragedy of just existing at at all. 
And so, you know, to me, this just serves as one last reminder of that here in the the last chapter. That that's at least one way of reading this. I, I think that's a fair reading. I I think there's something also going on with um, young and archetypes and and myth. Uh, there's textual clues to that that we see in chapter four. Um, but then there's some extra textual stuff that I'll bring to the table when we get to our wrap up episode. There's one more thing I have to ask you about this story, Glenn. Is weird Julius smart? Well, I'm not sure about that, but he probably is Jesus uh, or the Virgin Mary, <laughs> which actually might need to be a question we ask in the wrap-up episode. But no, I'm I'm with you. Something is very confusing here, right? This business with the, the photographs of these people are too old for this to be happening right now. It's too old for any of this to have happened to Weir, the Weir as we understand him through the memoir that we've been reading, that the things we know about how old he is. I mean, just as like a basic fact is called into question again here. If the account that Weir is giving us is is true, this business with the photographs is really uh, just unsettling. It makes me feel very uncomfortable. I just feel totally disoriented now. And so, yeah, something doesn't seem to be, something doesn't seem to be right. And then trying to think even about this relationship with Charles Turner, who comes to the plant and hangs out with Weir. Weir presumably has been to the circus, you know, you know, maybe it's only just now, you know, obviously the circus was in town or nearby anyway, such that Charles Turner could get here to begin with and, you know, came thinking, I guess, that he was going to see Julius Smart, who saved his life when he was a baby, you know, and uh, wanting to do something for him in some way. And, you know, finds out Julia Smart's not here anymore, that Weir is here. And, you know, they get to talking and presumably Charles then invites Weir to the circus as a kind of VIP and, you know, gets to meet some of these people backstage, which I think is definitely something Weir would be really excited about. It's definitely something Gene Wolfe would be really excited about. I think (laughs) we could say that for sure. But then they become pen pals in some way. It just it's very strange. It's a it, and I don't really know how to make sense of the just the reality of it. There's also so much specific detail we learn about this family, the Masons, that makes us feel that like we must know these people. We must have seen them somewhere in the novel. But Charles Taylor has never seen Mr. Mason. He doesn't know if he exists. He extrapolates his existence from the presence of Mrs. Mason and her two daughters, right? But there's no analog for these characters that I have found in this novel. And there's, you know, some people have... um, since we were at the end of the book, I did look into this a little bit, Glenn, so don't get too mad. But some <laughs> some fans and readers of this book have suggested that the name Doris uh, is part of you know a, a long line of Wolf's use of the last syllable of a name to indicate the full name of somebody else. So Doris could be the child of... Uh, Ted Sing- Singer, if his name is Theodore, but we don't ever really see that in the text. Uh, Ted or Teddy could also be short for Ed. So it's, you know, any other extrapolation could be made there. Um, also, they've gone to say that the, you know, French word Doré is gold. And so Doris could be the child of Ted Singer and um, Shelley Gold, and that that's what we're getting an update on and all this stuff. I find a reading like that to be labored in some sense, though you and I often do labored reading. So that's not a critique. 
for me, I I just I don't see how convincing it is. But at the same time, I'm also struggling to make sense of those five people in the waiting room and what we're supposed to do with them, especially when Ted Singer and Abel Green are barely mentioned in in the text at all. So I get the desire to move in that direction, but I really struggle to read this letter as something that I need to unveil to make sense of the rest of the novel. Uh, I just threw it a lot, lot out to you there. Maybe I can just get a few reactions from you. Right. Well, and, and, Mason is a name that, you know, I can note something. I mean, it's, you know, someone who is a Mason, right? And you know, Singer, I guess, is a name that does that too. You know, there, there are names like that, right? Wolf loves to play with names for sure. And I do think that we're supposed to wonder, you know, who about the identity of Mr. Mason and wonder if is we're somehow Mr. Mason? Was Julia Smart somehow Mr. Mason? Right. We want to know who is the father of of Doris such that this story seems like it ought to matter to Weir, that there ought to be some connection there somehow. And and I think if we're looking around the story for children who with with missing fathers or or children born out of wedlock or something like that, that you know we we might need to wonder about Shirley Gold and you know potential teenage pregnancy and and that sort of thing. But I I still don't see where there's anything explicit to let us connect any of those dots. So at least at this point, I don't have any strong feelings about this. And I guess what I will say is that this is one of the things that we're going to do, right? When we go read the book at least one more time, possibly two more times before we do our wrap-up episode, is to right read from the beginning again with the end in mind and to be looking for these sorts of things. You know, we read through it one time, talk about it paragraph by paragraph with each other, in some sense, just to figure out what the questions are, and then we have to go back and read <laughs> right. to look for the answers, right? <laughs> yeah, well, this this letter is confounding, and, and I'm sure that there are readers of Peace, uh, maybe some listeners to our show even, who have really come up with some convincing proposals and arguments for, for just what is going on with this letter. I'm stumped. I may not be by the time we get to our wrap-up episodes. I may still be. Lots of mentions of apples in this, uh, in this letter. There's candy apples and toffee apples. Candy's a stripper. Uh, Weir seems to be pretty into that. I don't know. Maybe there's something going on there. We'll have to figure out. I'm going to have to track all the apples in, in the novel <laughs> as part of my job uh, when, when we get to the wrap-up episodes. But let's move on here. Let's keep humming along. Uh, let's next talk about the next section, which is the introduction to uh, the plant. I think you know we're kind of comfortable saying that they make Tang here and the ghost story. So before we do that, though, there's one thing I need to ask you about this office scene before Dan French comes in. Uh, we get this mention that also on Weir's desk, which has been replaced, he tells us he replaced it already, and the whole office has been redecorated. Weir has a letter written to Julia Smart from Professor Peacock. This seems crazy to me. And it's another, like, why I asked the question, is Weir also Julia Smart? What did you make of this touch here? Right. Yeah. Again, this doesn't make a lot of sense. Just logistically, this I, I can totally believe that there's a letter from Professor Peacock to Julia Smart. We can talk about what we think the contents of that letter is in a moment. But I can believe that when Weir becomes president of the company, presumably on Julia Smart's death, 
though I don't think that we know that explicitly, but there are some clues to that. And one of them would be that there's stuff belonging, you know, personal stuff belonging to Julius Smart here in the office when Weir moves into it. So I can totally buy that he finds this letter, maybe a bunch of other personal private stuff from Julius Smart. Then he has the office redecorated. What the motivation for that is, is not entirely clear, but you know, we could imagine some, one just, uh, we're not liking it, wanting to have a, an office that suits his tastes more. Though it's a pretty hideous office, so that might not be the case, but it also <laughs> might just be wanting to put his own stamp on it, right? To let the executives, the, you know, the, the tear down, know the vice presidential level that he's inherited, right? Understand that he is in charge, right? That there's there's going to be changes and that sort of thing. We do also see that Weir is very concerned about his persona and the idea of this job as a public facing job, and so wanting to redecorate the office in a way that broadcasts that perhaps might be the motive, or any combination of those things, perhaps. But then, why after you've redecorated it, do you put this letter on the desk as a kind of decoration? That's really weird. It's you know that's that's a strange thing to do, really, almost no matter what the the content is. But it's especially strange because I don't think that the content of this letter can have anything to do with the company, right? The content of this letter has to be about Olivia. Abs- absolutely, it has to be about Olivia. You know, there, there's a romantic rivalry there. They Peacock and Smart were supposed to be friends. You know, Smart's a kind of a ugly hunchbacked looking dude and he comes in and steals professor peacock's girl but the affair goes on and i think these guys probably have a lot to talk about <laughs> if, you know they're writing letters to each other but why would Weir have this letter and have it like nailed down to the desk like it's in his uh memory palace his mansion so his museum house. So yeah, there's so much strangeness around this letter, whether or not this is a a letter about what happened to Olivia or trying to make amends at the end of their lives or something like that. Though we know Peacock died uh, not too long after Aunt Olivia dies. So this is, the timing is off again, and it's all very weird. And I and I will say this, just uh, a textual um, twist to this kind of interrogation of Julius Smart and Weir's entanglements is this bit about in hell, uh, two souls, if they are both evil, are entwined when when one murders the other. There's no hint that Weir murdered Julius Smart, but there is this sense we get at the end of this novel that there's at least some indelible imprint that... Weir carries with him that is Smart's spirit in some way. I mean, that does seem like that might be happening here and that there's a conflation or a a confusion of memories and that some of the memories, some of the episodes that have been narrated in this memoir are actually Julius Smart's memories and not Weir's. And that might explain some of the discrepancies in, in time and so on. But I don't know that the living Weir who is you know, in this moment, the president, who's the, the the living weir who has redecorated this office, I don't think that that person is, you know, possessed by Julia Smart in some way. And something I should just say, really, to listeners here is that, of course, what I have just described is something that actually happens in a later Wolf book. Right. I won't say, I, you know, and, and you're aware of which one it is. I'm aware of which one it is. But one of the you know rules that we're trying to live by here is that we're doing things in chronological order and we're not 
allowing things that Wolf is going to write into the future to come back and affect our our reading here. So I'm gonna I'm gonna jettison that. But uh, maybe that's a conversation we can have uh, with listeners over in some private bit of the forum or something like that, a spoiler zone. Yeah, it's certainly hard not to read backwards when when you're seeing the development of maybe a technique take place. Um, but we're, tr- we're trying really hard not to. All right, let's put this uh, confusing business behind us and, and get into perhaps more confusing business in this chapter, <laughs> which is the ghost story. Uh, we're told that by Weir that the events surrounding the establishment of the ghost story took place in 1938. Weir said he was two years out of school with his engineering degree, might have been a master's or a five-year program, Um, probably wasn't a four-year program at the time. Uh, This doesn't matter as much now. It will when we put together a timeline of the events of the novel and and certain years or dates that, that Weir highlights throughout the memoir. But uh, Weir was at the company. Uh, This looks like it was a hazing ritual that's gone wrong. Weir knows an awful lot about this, including how the person felt that uh, left the kid to die in the freezer. Do you think he was involved in the ritual in any way? I don't. And the reason I don't is that I don't think that Weir ever worked in this part of the facility. Because what we know, what we learn about him is that he got this job right out of school, which, you know, that was real obvious that was going to happen. Even though he tells us that he's not spoken to Julia Smart since Olivia's funeral, still, uh, he applied for a job at his uncle's business. And uh, presumably the HR department's aware that he's, you know, the CEO's <laughs> nephew and they're going to hire him. So he's had that job lined up and he moves right into it. And it's a job in the engineering department. And then he works in that engineering department for a long time. And then he becomes the the president of the company, right? And so there's no sense that he ever was doing this kind of stocking job here in the, in the plant, working the night shift or anything like that. So I just don't think that he was involved in this ritual. I don't think that, you know, he was the uh, one who you know, left the kid in there to die or just was part of the the group or anything like that. I don't think he was the kid either in some way. Like, I don't think that, you know, Weir has now a go- has become a ghost or something like that. Weir is the ghost, which I guess is a reading someone could try to have here that would be fun to try to do. So no, I think this is just office gossip that Weir knows about. Yeah. I often wondered, I mean, based on the fact that Weir got a car in his third year in college, that the reason he got the car uh, was so he could work at the factory during college. And if he did, then he'd be stocking stuff. Um, but it seems to me as though, you know, that's another, that that would be a labored <laughs> reading as well, though when we reread the novel, we might find uh, details that support different feelings we have about what's going on here. I also am unsure if Weir was involved in this ritual. There are some hints uh, that lead me to believe he may have been like it was all swept under the rug and, you know, Weir and Smart never really spoke again, though we think that has to do with Aunt Olivia's death. That's never explicitly stated, though, either. Um, and it could have been this, that, you know, Weir was just dumped in the engineering department and kind of left alone. And that might mean then that Smart had a bigger involvement in this, right? Because why cover it up for this this nephew? Uh, and then keep him at the company. So there's there's a lot of, of 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 questions here. One of the things that I think readers of this novel and I I also have a tendency to wonder about a feeling that's evoked is 
the number of deaths that seem to surround Weir of murders, essentially. Um, there's Bobby Black's death, which is unintentional. Then this bit about Lois Arbuthnot being eradicated or erased from the future, which could be a death thing. Aunt Olivia's murder. All of this stuff around Weir. And then we have this other accidental murder. And do you get the sense that Weir is just killing people by accident a lot? He's just like the most unfortunate man who ever lived? Or is he just kind of surrounded by death? Well, 100%, Wolf wants us to be asking this question, right? He, he shows us these deaths in such a way that we have to ask ourselves, what was Weir's involvement in, in them? Uh, you know, from the very start. And the the one death that we know that Weir was involved in, the, you know, we know that explicitly. Still, we had to read between the lines a little bit to actually know that, even though Wolf isn't really hiding that from us. The way that he doesn't show us at all what happened to Lois, for example, right? We We do at least know that Bobby Black is dead and we can piece together what happened, but we don't even know what happened to Lois, for example, right? And we don't know even the identity then of this person in the the, the freezer in the cold house here. And then Olivia's death as well. Uh, you just called it a murder. I'm, I'm not sure that that's something we get explicitly in the text. We'll have to think about that again in the, the wrap-up episodes. But you know, Wolf gives us hints. He teases us with little bits of information, shows us that the thing is really important. And then by doing that, asks us to try to fill in the blanks based on the limited evidence that he's given us. And then, I think by extension, asks us to put together a, a picture of a sequence of events in Weir's life that all involve deaths. And one possible conclusion that we all, I think, at least need to think about is, is Weir a serial killer? Right. That's certainly one approach to the text that we will we will take up uh, in our wrap-up episodes. I get the sense much more that Weir has been essentially named culpable for the death of this other child when he was a kid and is now deeply unable to confront the deaths of people that he knows or was around or whatever um, because he's unsure of the degree to which he's he's culpable after the fact. Could he have stopped it somehow? Could he have stepped in? Could he have done something differently? He 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 seems to me as though he's a man who is unable to emotionally touch on the death or deaths of people he knows. Lois Arbuthnot might be a big question mark to me, um, but he's unable to touch on it because of the huge unresolved emotional reality surrounding Bobby Black's death and the way his family handled it. And so whether or not he's gone around killing people, um, that's one way to look at it. The other way is, is that he's just deeply traumatized by this and can't accept any culpability or carries too much culpability with him. It says, well, I worked at the company at that time. I knew the people involved. I should, uh, why didn't I step in? I'm responsible for the death in a way. And so he feels that responsibility whether or not he participated in the actual death of these people. 
certainly the entire memoir is haunted in some sense, right? And from the very start by Bobby Black, and then there are all these other deaths or missing people who are haunting the book in some way. And I think that's one of the reasons there actually are so many ghost stories in this book, right? That ghosts and haunting are one, you know, the sort of related motifs of, of this book when we're looking at a life that is in itself haunted, at least in a metaphorical way. That was a, a much quicker summary, I think, of what I was trying to say. <laughs> but let's just wrap up this ghost story here. In rereading this chapter for this episode today, putting it down for a couple of weeks, I got the feeling that Fred Thurlow was actually the ghost returned in some sense uh, due to his odd disappearance in the freezer, all the stuff surrounding the the feelings that Weir has of the haunted factory, you know, just just that this reporter comes and yes, he's emblematic of the social change and what's going on in the broader world in the 1970s. But the scene with the ghost story with Fred gave me the feeling that Fred might've been the one who had died and Weir's the only one who knows this. That's a reading I have. Did you get the sense that the ghost is real, that it's just a bit of company folklore, that Fred is the ghost? What was your sense? I don't know what the rules of ghosts are in, in this world, <laughs> right? You know, what, what times of day can they materialize? How long can they materialize for? But, you know, this is the daytime and definitely we see Fred outside. Uh, and so, I don't know, doesn't seem to be conforming to rules of ghosts that I would be more comfortable with. You know, if this were at night, uh, if he were wearing clothing that didn't seem to quite work for uh, the the era that we're in or something like that but we don't get any clues like that at all any any hints like that plus dan french you know knows he's coming right it's it's not like i don't think that i don't think that the setup here is that fred showed up at the plant and said i'm a reporter uh it's clear that that there's been some arrangement here right so i just I, I want to be with you on this, but I don't think so. That's fine. It's a, uh, it's just a feeling I got. I, I don't think I could defend it if I had to. But um, yeah, let's uh, <laughs> let's continue along here and now get into the factory itself. Uh, there's a lot going on here. One of the things that gets reiterated here in this chapter, in both the interview with the woman. Uh, at the factory, and then also the way that, uh, you know, the person who I think is someone in the Green family, uh, the farmer, talks about the way farming has changed is in subsistence farming and the happiness that that provided people to own a little bit of land, to plant your own food, to grow it, um, you know, to only go to the store when you need to, but you didn't need a lot of money to survive. Farming is a stepping stone to a good life. And now it's all been ruined by these giant factories that require monoculture crops and they're sucking up all the water in the land. They're destroying nature. Um, and life is so much worse now that we have industry and it was better than we have farming. Quality of life is better. So one, I guess I, I just have to ask, yeah, we've seen this throughout the the novel, the, the alternates to an industrial economy that Wolf has put forward here. But I wonder the, with the strength that this key argument comes through twice, if you found it as convincing as, say, uh, Charlie's mom's story about her experiencing farming and how terrible that was for her family. Yes, these are the two places where we're we're getting the 
Gene Wolfe, who's very interested in political philosophy and thinking about political systems, you know, ideal political systems. Uh, Gene Wolfe, who's interested in thinking about utopias and dystopias, which of course is a a central, a fundamental component of speculative fiction. It's really at the origins of what speculative fiction is. And Wolfe loves to work in that mode really throughout his entire his entire writing career, his entire oeuvre. And we've had actually a, a pretty substantial dose of it in the early part of Wolf's career, which I think this this is a part of. And so I'm really interested in the appearances of these things in, in chapter three and chapter five here. And I, I think this is going to be one of the main things actually that I'm looking for as I'm rereading as we get into the wrap-up episode is to try to piece together, you know, if there is something that Wolf is wanting us to really take away from this in terms of political philosophy. It does seem to me that we are meant to side with the people who are making these critiques. I don't think that we're meant to read these critiques and feel like they're uh, unreasonable or unwarranted or that there are uh, defenses against them. I think that we are meant to be on the side of these speakers. We're meant to share their point of view or be convinced of their point of view. And I have a real sense here that Wolf is quietly expressing some discontent from post-World War II consumerism, industrial consumerism, and is advocating for some version of the political ideology of G.K. Chesterton and Hilaire Belloc, which is uh, often called distributism. Uh, That's something I'm definitely going to want to think more about. Yeah, I've I've also been thinking about that. We've been reading The Man Who Was Thursday (laughs) in our free time, and I've uh, been reading more about distributism. And um, I think Wolf has totally picked up on that in some sense. I'm really fascinated, though, in peace, the way, uh, I guess, the vehemence with which this arguments, these arguments at the end of the novel are made, uh, to me, it kind of undermines the strength of the argument to some degree. It's almost too strong in in the way in which, you know, one, you have this depressed woman who's like, you know, we didn't need that much money and now we just buy stuff and we're unhappy and we can't have kids and we can't afford this and that. I mean, these are critiques you and I have probably made dozens of time off Mike's off, off mic. Um, and then the farmer's critique. But really, what's shocking to me is that Wolf has built in even the critique to this position, which is maybe why it feels undermined to some degree in chapter three with Charlie's mom saying, that farm is terrible. They've inherited this thing. It's really bad. No one wants it anymore. And that should have been at a time prior to the factory farming um, or maybe just at the start of factory farming where people might have still believed farming was good. And so we're kind of left with two things in my mind here. One is that smart and these big uh, industrial business owners, inventors, CEOs, all this stuff, they're not people who we should think of as good. This is another moment where the novel is obliquely asking us about the question of greatness and who we value as a culture in our society Um, and what good is, what is a good life, what is a fulfilling life. And so we might ask whether or not Smart himself was good because the way he went about things wasn't good uh, or the result of the way he went about things wasn't good. And the other thing we might consider here is that Wolf, uh, you know, in alignment with this letter, is writing this novel a little bit in praise of outsiders, 
of people who see this and 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 can't quite uh, go along with the current and find themselves always a little bit cockeyed in and a little feeling left out in the things they're asked to do in order to have a family, in order to have the things they need in life. Um, and I'm sure Wolf felt a little bit like an outsider himself uh, as he was working these jobs, writing stories, critiquing them, and uh, just really considering his role in society. With neither of us ever having been able to meet Gene Wolfe personally, get to know him as a person except through his writing, I still think, yeah, we can envision Gene Wolfe as a highly intelligent person, at least at some point in his life, and definitely the point in which he's writing this novel, working a a kind of drone-ish job and having a, a, a private life or you know private aspirations for what a good life would really be that wouldn't involve this dronishness and i think we can read that into these scenes here for sure but i think we get that just in the character of weir as well that weir is definitely an outsider to this society even though he's born into a privileged family at the center of cashinsville's elite society nonetheless he doesn't ever really seem to quite fit in. As an adult, he becomes, uh, I don't know, enters into some kind of self-imposed exile from from this community, although it may actually have quite a bit to do with Bobby Black's death. We could That's something we could think more about in the wrap-up episodes. But I guess what I'm really just trying to say is that Weir doesn't ever marry. He doesn't become a family person in this community. He doesn't seem to be involved in the community in any way. You know, he's not, I don't know, in the community theater or the community band. He doesn't seem to be going to charity events or doing much of anything. The the one hobby that we know that he has is that he likes to go home and read books. And then he goes to work and he's alone, right? He's detached from this community. And so even though he's here, you know, he's not in the circus, he's here. He's not really participating with his whole with his whole being, and I think that for for people like Weir, and I'm I'm you know thinking about myself as as one of them really that there is this romanticism of running off to the circus, you know, having this this profession that is in itself being outside, right, being outside of society in some way that is really quite romanticized. I think, you know, one of the features that we get from this letter actually from Charles Turner is to have that romantic veil, you know, pulled off and to see, you know, that there are some warts under there. <laughs> but, but I do think that this is this is a big part of what's going on with Weir's with Weir's character for sure. I think so, and I think it's really evident in the way that Weir reports to us that he's putting on this artificial persona, right? In the way he decorated the office, in the way that he drinks screwdrivers with Tang, you know, and only privately drinks scotch, and that's a relief to him. Um, you know, in the the way that this stuff stresses him out and he carries it and he's like having lots of strokes, in the way that he's obsessed with returning to the past and finding these moments or rediscovering these moments where he felt he belonged uh, to some family, even if it was only uh, with Aunt Olivia and eating pickles, you know, and looking at her secret scrapbook, these moments of belonging that he longs for, what he's doing now is, you know, to quote uh, the film uh, American Psycho, he just wants to fit in, right? But he doesn't really (laughs) 
no how, so it's all superficial. Right. It, he's really very concerned about what type of business card he has. Yes, he's trying to feed a cat to an ATM. Uh, that's that's <laughs> something that doesn't happen in this book. But uh, <laughs> All right. Well, let's keep moving along here. Um, there's one thing that comes up before we get to Dan French's story uh, that closes out the novel, basically, which is something that many readers have made uh, you know, much hay from. And it is this. We learned that Julius Smart's middle initial is T. Is this a detail that jumped out to you? And if so, why? Well, in the episode where we encountered this, I made a Star Trek joke, and no one has heard that episode yet. We haven't aired it as we're recording this, but I, I do want to say here for the record that uh, that joke can't it can't be real. It can't really be Tiberius, which is the middle name of of Kirk. Uh, Captain Kirk is J T Kirk. He's James Tiberius Kirk. That this cannot be an allusion to Star Trek because at the point that Wolf was uh, writing this book, even though. Star Trek, the TV show, had gone off the air already. Uh, Kirk's middle name as Tiberius had not yet entered the canon. It didn't uh, enter the canon until the TV show was off the air. We don't get it on screen, actually, until uh, the film franchise in the the 1980s. And so uh, that is definitely not what Wolf is doing here. But that is why it jumped out to me. But I am interested in uh, other thoughts about what the T might stand for. Uh, Tilly? That's the kind of canonical reading or maybe anti-canonical. That's one of the major interpretations of this T here. Uh, I have to ask you, though, since I'm not as familiar with Star Trek lore as you are, was it known in the series that it was J.T. Kirk and they just didn't come up with Tiberius or does that not come until later either? Uh, no, in fa- no, no. In fact, I, I can I can really nerd out about some Star Trek. Really, anytime anybody wants. But uh, <laughs> what we uh, what we do see on screen in the original series, there's a, an episode in which we get a uh, a, a tombstone for Captain Kirk. Uh, you know, he doesn't uh, he doesn't actually die. Obviously, that's not what's happening there. But we see that his middle initial is actually R. Uh, but we also but but Gene Roddenberry, the creator of Star Trek, had said that he always thought that Kirk's middle initial was uh, was T. Uh, and that this was a, a production mistake, and that you know he had a, a retcon answer ready to go if somebody ever asked him about that. And so, the the T business was I don't think ever actually said in an episode of the TV show, uh, but it was something that was talked about uh, uh, in the writing staff. And so fans became aware of this at conventions. And of course, Star Trek more or less invented cons as as we speculative fiction fans know them today uh, in the early 1970s. And, and that seems to actually be also the origin of uh, the T becoming Tiberius, that one of the writers was asked about this. Uh, in fact, it was uh, David Gerald, who uh, has also become a really important uh, science fiction novelist. I've covered actually one of his books over on ATOS. But at any rate, he was asked a question about this at a con and just blurted out that it was you know, Tiberius. That's what it stood for. And, and that now has become canonical. Well, that's all fantastic. And I'm glad you explained that because I, I, I could have made a justification for Gene Wolfe making that joke here in this text. I mean, we know how he's into like, he pulled out the cult of ghoul and the the uh, Necronomicon and all this stuff that he's he can get into stuff, right? I mean, like he's demonstrated that in this novel. And so if there was a oh, yeah. detail that he would have seen, uh, there's no doubt that he would have investigated it and it would have stuck with him. Yeah, Tilly is, though, the kind of general thought that uh, I've seen floating around as people write and think about this. Again, 
I don't know what it I don't know what it would mean unless Smart is also Mr. Mason and there's this bit about him abandoning families and you know having a daughter and I don't know. I, I, I don't know that it's meant to be anything other than that someone that we know as Julius Smart also went by JT professionally or I don't know. Yeah, I'm very lost. The same way we get Mrs. Burkhead's last name is Tyler. Uh, you know, Miss Burkhead is a Mrs. Burkhead and her last name is Tyler. And there's no other Tyler in the book. And it's just to me here for a reality effect, again, to remind us that Weir has kept much from us, that he's writing a memoir, and that that memoir is very carefully controlled in terms of what it reveals narratively. And that this last chapter is here to really remind us of all this stuff, maybe more than it is to give us clues to look back in and um, tear the novel apart in the way that you and I have over the course of, I don't know, God knows how, how long this is taken. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, we'll talk more about names, I guess, in the wrap-up episode. But, you know, we have already on the air, really, you, you know, have made Orange Julius jokes. It's clear that that's what Wolf is using as a starting point for this name. So I would be more inclined to believe that the T is continuing that joke somehow. You know, I don't know what that would be. Maybe it's, I don't know, twist yeah, you know, I don't tang, know, something related I mean, to, you know, I mean, Tang, anything, right, right, you know, it's some kind of joke, I would think, more than actually a hint to uh, some kind of, you know, parentage or or some relationship that we've, you know, not been able to uncover in some other way. Whenever there are unresolved questions or puzzles or mysteries in Wolf, I think I always want to err on the side of of the answer being a joke than it, it, it really being some kind of clue. Right, because I think it's clear uh, when Wolf is really leaving clues. And and to me, this chapter doesn't feel like it's full of these clues, but that makes it all the more baffling for it. As we see here in this, in this final Doherty story that we get through Dan French, I really want to ask you this question one more time before we get into our wrap-up episodes. I know I brought it up in, in chapter four. Dan French is a Doherty. Weir has consistently interacted with people impacted by the Doherty's or the Doherty's to themselves throughout his life. Again, does this final interaction give you any sense as to the importance of the Doherty's to Weir in Cashinsville or just to Weir himself? Yeah, I'll give you a kind of a quick answer to that question here, Brandon, because I do think that this is going to be something that really matters to us in the the wrap-up episodes and the way that we're looking at the book as a whole, one of the things that we've talked about a lot as we've covered this novel, paragraph by paragraph, is the way that this is a memoir, not of we're alone, but it's a memoir of America. It's a memoir of the United States really in the aftermath, I guess, of the Civil War, right? what we'd think of as, as high modern America. And there are several strands that Wolf is using here or following here in the way that he's crafting this story. But two of them come into play here with the Doherty family. And one of them is immigration, and the other one is class. And, and actually, I guess it's not really two. It's it's three or, or two and a half anyway. At least adjacent to class then is economic prosperity and social mobility. And so we have tracked now, in some sense, several generations of Weirs. We really only get two generations of them on on the page as as active characters, but we know about Weir's ancestors. We get uh, quite a few details about them, and we also get a lot of Doherty's, or also 
Mills, right? The, the, that those two families, you know, being very intertwined there, and that with the Doherty's, we see them as immigrants first to the East Coast, then eventually to the Midwest. Uh, we see them working as servants at at various levels. Servants, I think, initially to not a particularly well-off family, then servants to a very wealthy family. That's the Blaines. But now we have the next generation of this family is working as an executive at the you know chief economic driver of this community and so there's a sense of you know Dan French being the Doherty who made it and that that's the successful immigrant story of America and i think that that's one of the big things that wolf is doing in this book that's an absolutely brilliant reading i hadn't even considered that in the background of this memoir is the secret saga of the Doherty family, uh, which, you know, <laughs> you could be turned into a Thornbird style epic or something like that. Uh, and, and yeah, absolutely. That's, that's marvelous. And, and I don't know why I missed that. I've been probably reading the paragraphs too, uh, dispar- like too distinctly from one another uh, as distinct units. And, and yeah, if when you really look at this text, when you really zoom out, what you get is this this saga essentially of this family, and that's absolutely breathtaking that Wolf has been able to pull this off in the background. And part of it is because their role in Weir's life, which is what Weir focused on as readers, is to continually show up as these storytellers. And so we get this final Doherty story that ends the novel, essentially. But then we have to put it in direct contrast with that first Doherty story, which is also about the she, but it's a banshee, where Weir learns about the banshee, about Jack, the main character in that story, being the father of the Antichrist, of having to go to this barn at midnight in the the woods and uh, deal with this banshee. And then in this chapter, in chapter five, Weir tells... Dan French, that he's been into houses in the woods at midnight uh, because apparently his father didn't just hunt deer, maybe also ghosts. So we have the the, the resonance, again, of that story, of that initial Banshee story, even though we never see Weir, as we say, get married, though we need know he did fall in love with Margaret Lorne. Um, it's not clear that he had a daughter like Jack and Molly did. But, you know, if you people want to interpret Doris as having had a daughter, but the point is that if that story is about Weir somehow, Weir has avoided giving birth to the Antichrist, which is a really great thing. That's a, I don't know, a heroic motive, I guess, a heroic mode of being. Uh, if you know you're going to give birth to the, to the Antichrist, maybe practice safe sex or something along those lines. Uh, and, and, and so that story that's caught up in violence and disappointment and uh, an evil ghost and the Antichrist is now put into comparison with this final Doherty story about redemption, about forgiveness. The main character's name is Deirdre, which means brokenhearted or sorrowful, who outlives everybody else in her life and then is baptized and brought into the family of Christ, into Christianity, and is redeemed in that way. So I wonder if you had any thoughts here about the comparison between these two stories, um, and if you think Deirdre is meant to 
represent somebody in the story or the Shi'ar, or this is just a, a, a story, as we've been suggesting, about really the redemption of the Doherty family, who may be the secret main characters of this novel. <laughs> I mean, I would totally read that that family saga that's kind of James Michener-style family saga about the, the Dohertys. And it, it, I think it is likely, actually, that Wolf had something like that in mind, not so much about the Dohertys, but about the the weirs here, in, in just the, the thinking of telling a type of saga because as much as this is a memoir there, there's some saga elements too but we'll we'll table that for now and take that up more in the the wrap-up episodes which I, I think will be fun i'll need to go read some i don't know some mitchner or something in, <laughs> in between to get, get my chops there but no to, to get back to these stories though uh, something that really jumped out to me about this this final story that we get from dan french is the idea of this flock having its own I- identity, right? It's made up of individuals, but but also every individual in the flock is also made up of the entire flock. That's a real interesting idea in itself. And then we do get this body at the end, right, that then transforms or splits into three. And you've been asking questions about whether or not Weir is some kind of composite identity somehow, you know, like possessed by Julius Smart or, you know, something like that. And I hadn't thought about this story operating along those lines, but maybe there's something to that. But I think that my preferred reading of that would really be more uh, metaphysical, be more metaphorical, and that this is, well, thinking about groups as things that really exist, things that have identities that are greater than the sum of their parts and that can continue to exist even as all of the original parts are gone, a kind of you know ship of Theseus sort of thing. And that Wolf is uh, thinking about you know what does it mean to be America? What does it mean to be American? It's been one of the central questions of the story. It is part of what is going on with the Doherty family and the Weir family at all here. Uh, but then also thinking about what our lives are, how our, how our lives as individuals are made up. And I think that that's why we get this this story at the end. It gives us a kind of metaphor for all of these things that Wolf has been thinking about, you know, how we decide who we are, what our identities are composed of, what about the identities of groups with which we are affiliated or, or you know, of which we are members and so on. He also gets this offer of redemption here, which he seems to reject which takes us into the final paragraph of the story. It's this this beautiful moment where Weir is perhaps being offered, as I've said, the, the, the chance to be free of the groups and the group identities that he has had to put on throughout his life uh, to take on this new one, that of being baptized, to take on this Christian identity. And instead, the story ends... Um, Weir says he wakes up, he's back in his memory palace. Uh, it's time to go find the philosopher's pillow or the philosopher's pillow is looming in the background. And I should say specifically Chinese here, because this is another great wave of immigration to the United States. And I think Wolf treats this wave of immigration, the, the Chinese immigration, much the way that American culture does, which is to either forget it or put it really far in the background and kind of fetishize cultural artifacts uh, above the the people themselves. The mysticism or Orientalism um, behind the the this wave of immigration and kind of not really, you know, 
remember that, you know, the Chinese were also slaves who built our railroad lines and uh, did a m- number of other things. We uh, put the Japanese in internment camps in World War II. And instead, what we get here is Olivia's fetishization of the material artifacts of the culture. And that's how this story ends with these two representations of the, the American immigrant story are contrasted on one level, but then also Weir's choice to use the Chinese philosopher's pillow, this totally other mode of encountering the world compared with Western philosophy rooted in Christianity, um, to return back to his life. And then the last line we get is a line that is repeated from page 83 of the novel, where his aunt used to basically tell Dennis, it's time to go to bed. Are you still awake? What do you make of this? <laughs> What's going on here? A lot of the things I put out here, we're going to have to save for the wrap-up episode, uh, the way Wolf is handling um, racial and cultural identities and national identities. We've already said American. The question of what is an American is a big one in this novel. But really, let's just try to get to the the meat and potatoes here of this ending. What's going on in your mind here? Yeah, thinking about the the juxtaposition of Christian redemption and then also this uh, ceramic pillow that lets you go back in time and and have another go at it, I think that here is a place where we're going to want to be thinking about purgatory and the the theology of redemption in uh, Catholic Christianity. This is definitely a place where I'm going to want to be talking about, you know, in the wrap up episodes uh, about things that Tolkien has written about this, fantasy stories that Tolkien has written about this. Uh, I think we might be going back to Dante a little bit here to think about this ending as well. Uh, but I don't have I don't have good answers for you here. But hopefully we we we, we will in the wrap up episode. Yeah, I, I think all of my answers about this are going to have to come in the wrap up episode because it it is an approach to the text. I'll you know spill the beans here uh, and say I'm going to be bringing some Alan Watts into this um, because I found some shocking overlaps in some of what Wolf is up to in this story with. Um, Primarily the introduction to one of Alan Watts's texts, the only one that that would have been available, I think, to Wolf as he was reading this novel or as he was writing this novel and um, in investigating his own religious convictions as he was uh, kind of late convert to Catholicism. Not as late as, you know, people like Graham Greene or G.K. Chesterton, but um, late enough. So, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm really excited for us to bring these approaches and readings to the novel when we get to our final wrap-up episode. Uh, but I guess we should end here as Wolf does in, in that we're already kind of being called back into the text. So that's going to do it for this episode. Once again, I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. I, I think, you know, the subtitle for this episode is the the one where we punt. <laughs> it's an American football metaphor there. But we will be back on March 14th with the, the wrap-up episode where we will uh, actually answer all of the questions, or at least try to answer all of the questions that we've really, I think, just raised in this episode. Uh, I say, you know, wrap-up episode. I think it's almost guaranteed that this will become two wrap-up episodes. It may even become three. Uh, I think there's an awful lot for us to talk about, but also... Uh, I know that I'm just going to have a hard time saying goodbye to this book, and we'll probably uh, draw out the the time that we're <laughs> we're spending on it. But in the meantime, before we get to the final end here of our coverage of peace, I hope that uh, listeners will go check out the Bradbury Chronicles. It's a great podcast, and uh, uh, I think you'll really like it. 
But until next time, until the wrap-up episode, we greet you and say farewell. <laughs>